Well, good morning. Happy birthday, America. This morning, uh, I'd like to do something we don't often do around here. Uh, actually, David's gone, so I figured, why not, you know? <laughs> actually, I talked to him before he left, and he thought this was an okay idea, something that uh, we might try. What I'd like to do today is begin a topical series. You know, typically around here, we, work, we teach through a book of the Bible, or at least a section of the book. And this has a variety of advantages. First of all, it allows the scriptures to dictate what we teach. We uh, don't just pick and choose our favorite doctrines, whatever comes up in the book. The next thing that's taught in the book is the next thing we teach. I also think it is easier for people to follow uh, and to retain. They're not wondering, now, where did he get that? And where did that come from? And they're not thumbing through trying to figure out where this is all coming from. But they can go back through the passage and, and follow the flow of the argument and really hold on to it. Quite honestly, it's a lot easier. Uh, for the one that's teaching, you don't have to try to figure out where you're going to be teaching from. Whatever is the next section of the book, that's what you teach. And so it is a, a lot easier. But this morning, I'm throwing all of that to the wind. And I'm going to start... A topical series. We will be jumping around some. Please don't feel obligated to turn to every reference I get. You'll go nuts and you'll not hear a thing I say. But in order to keep it from getting too confusing, we'll anchor in one passage and look closely at one or two others. And I'll tell you when to go there. Uh, usually, I'll even won't even be turning there myself. I've written the verse that I'm re- that I'm uh, referring to down in my notes so that I don't have to do thumbing around as well. Now, this uh, topical series is a theological series on the joys, the delights, the things that God enjoys. Now, as soon as I say theological, I can see the minds clicking off all over the uh, auditorium. Because for most of us, when we hear that word theological, it means abstract, uh, incomprehensible, uh, irrelevant, sometimes downright boring. But really, the word theological, theology, just means it has to do with God. Theology is the study of God. Quite honestly, there's nothing more important, nothing more relevant, nothing more exciting for us to do than to look at God and what's true about Him. So that's why I wanted to begin our study, I mean, begin this series on what God really delights in, what He really likes. My only fear is that I will not be able to lay before you clearly a picture of who God is, that you might thrill and just be excited about knowing Him and knowing what He's like. The reason I want to look at God's delights, the things that He enjoys and how He enjoys them, is first of all, Scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians 3, that the more we look at God and the more clearly we see Him, the more we become like Him. In fact, we know that someday when we see him completely as he is, we will be just like him. In 1 John 3, verse 2, it says that we know that when he returns, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. So as we begin to see God for who he is, and to understand his joy and his delight, I want that for us. You know, our our um, understanding of God, our image of God is, is very significant in our experience of life. Much more significant than we realize. The image of God affects us profoundly. And since most of us imagine God 
as being kind of dour and a little bit grumpy and, and harsh and always pretty disappointed and frustrated with what he sees going on down here on earth. We tend to go through life frustrated and disappointed by and large. Recently, I read a book by a man by the name of John Piper. The book is called The Pleasures of God. And even though some of his arguments were a little steep for me, hard to understand, his basic thesis was very simple and exciting. It really uh, caught me. His basic thesis is that God likes being God. He really, really likes being who He is. He likes everything about it. He takes delight and pleasure in everything that He does. And this was a, a kind of, a, you know, it, it, it's simple, it's true, but for me, in looking at God and realizing that it, it was somewhat mind-blowing, earth-shaking. And it's my desire to look at God as He is and as He is portrayed in Scripture and see that what is really true of Him is that He is filled with almost incomprehensible joy and delight. Because that's what I want for us. Now, quite honestly, my thinking about this started with looking around and realizing the lack of joy in many of the lives around me. The lack of joy in my own life. started looking for where can I find joy? How am I going to get joy in my life? Now, I know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. I know that joy is a source of our strength. Nehemiah 6. I know that one of Jesus' primary motives in coming to earth was that we might have joy. In John 15, 11, he says, I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And in John 17, verse 13, during his prayer there to the Father, he prays referring to the disciples. I say these things so that they may have my joy, the full measure of my joy in them. Well, if that's true. If this is what Jesus wants for us, this is what he came to give us, why don't we have more joy? And where are we going to get more joy? Do we just suck it up and be joyful, paint on a happy face? How are we going to experience more joy in the midst of all of the difficult stuff that happens in our lives? Well, I think the, the, the starting place... Even looking at those two verses that I just read, where Jesus wants for us His joy, the starting place is to realize that Jesus is joyful, that He was filled with joy. What He wants for us is the delight that He found in life. See, Jesus was not frantically running around in life, all harried and hurried, frustrated by the complications that life brings No, he enjoyed his days. He enjoyed his relationships. He enjoyed joy. And most importantly, the key to his joy is he enjoyed his father and the relationship that he had with the father. In fact, in both of those statements I read in in, um, chapter 15 and chapter 17, Jesus says that he is telling his disciples something so that they might have joy. In, in, In verse In chapter 15, he said, I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And in his prayer, he said to God, I say these things to them so that they may have the full measure of my joy in them. Well, what was he telling them? What were the things that he was saying? Well, as I look at the context, what he was telling them was about the Father and about his relationship with the Father. He told them, everything I do, It's something I saw the Father doing. Everything I say is what the Father says. 
Jesus was talking about the intimate, uh, trusting, close relationship that he has with the Father. And see, that was his source of joy, knowing the Father and the relationship with the Father. And somehow by telling his disciples, by telling us about who the Father is and about that relationship, his joy was going to be in them. So, if we want joy, what we need to do is to look at the Father and to look at the relationship the Father and the Son have. And somehow that will become the source of our joy. And thus, this theological series on the delights of God, the place to start is God's delight, His eternal delight in His Son. Because of all the things there is to know about God, there is none greater, there is nothing more important than His delight in His Son. Well, there's uh, uh, any number of passages we could look at to find this theme, but I want to hang out in John 17. So go ahead and turn there, if you would. John 17 is Jesus' prayer for the disciples just before He goes to the cross. It's also, He includes in that prayer that He's not only praying for them, but those who come to know Him through them. That's you and me. He's praying for us just before He goes to the cross. I've already mentioned verse 13, where He Tells the Father, I've been telling them about you and our relationship so they may have the full measure of my joy. But what I want to do is look at the first couple of verses in that prayer and look at the last few verses. And ask the question, what does this tell us about the relationship between the Father and the Son? So let me read the first five verses and listen for that question. What does this tell you about the relationship between the Father and the Son? Verse 1, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you. For you've granted Him authority over all people, that He might give eternal life to all those you have given Him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. If you look very closely at those verses, the first idea that really jumps out at you is the whole idea of glory. Jesus says, glorify your son so I can glorify you. He wants wants God the Father to glorify him so that he can glorify God the Father. It's reciprocal. They're glorifying each other. Then Jesus says, and I've been glorifying you through my life here on earth. That's what it's been all about. Is glorifying you. And then he asks, Father, glorify me with the glory that we had before the worlds were made, before creation, for all eternity past. So this is all about glory. But what is glory? How do we glorify someone? What is it that the Father and Son had together before the world began? an interesting discussion about this staff meeting this last week, trying to figure out what is glory, grappling with this definition. Someone noted that glory is very similar to honor. When we honor God, we are glorifying Him. But then we tried to figure out what it meant to honor God, and we got just as stumped. We noted that some places in Scripture, the word doxa, which is glory, is translated praise. So praise is somehow part of glorifying God. And then Pat Blewett said something very interesting. I thought really was an insight into this word. He said, you know, somehow we can glorify people with our presence. 
If I go to, to um, a play that my daughter Sheila is in, I am glorifying her. And that's true. I thought that was a, 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 an interesting insight. You see, if you go to some activity of your child, you are glorifying them. And when they run up to you and hug you and tell you they love you, they are glorifying you. And when you tell your wife the things that you love about her, you are glorifying her. And when you think deeply about your husband's thoughts and feelings, you are glorifying him. Now, how is that? Well, see, what you're doing through your words and through your actions is you are saying very clearly that this person is valuable. This person is important to me. This person is beautiful to me. And that's what glory is all about. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated in the Old Testament for glory carries the idea of weight. This person is weighty to me. They're important to me. The word in the Greek carries more of the idea of reputation or fame. This person is important. They're, they're famous as far as I'm concerned. It carries the idea of respect. This last week we were watching my family a, a sitcom. And the plot of this particular sitcom was there was the older brother was at a, this party and he met this very famous, beautiful singer. And they got to know each other and she liked him. And so they started going out. But the problem was nobody in his family would believe that he knew this famous, important person. They could not imagine that somebody so famous, so important, would have anything to do, pay any attention to their brother. And he kept trying to convince them, and they kept telling him he was, you know, he was just making it all up. And he was so frustrated. And at the end of the, the program, this woman comes over, and they fall all over themselves. They're dumbfounded. They just can't believe it. And they, they make complete fools out of themselves in, in, in their amazement. And that brother was in his glory. Here was somebody that is famous and important that likes him. And that's what the idea behind glory is. That you're, you're, you're important, you're valuable, you're significant. You're worthy of time. You're worthy of thought. You're worthy of someone's praise and energies. You see, that's what the Father and the Son have been expressing to each other. What they've been expressing about each other. Here is somebody who is the most worthy, the most valuable, the most beautiful. Jesus said everything that He did on earth was intended to demonstrate that the Father is the most important. And the Father, everything He did for the Son was to demonstrate the value of the Son. But not only that, before this world was created, Jesus said that He and the Father experienced this glory for eternity past. The Father and the Son have been acknowledging and expressing their delight in each other. Their wonder and the beauty and the goodness and the kindness, and the virtue, and the strength, the power, the wisdom, the creativity, the intelligence. They have been exploring each other and delighting in each other for eternity past. Again, that is the idea of glory. But that's also exactly what eternal life is. Look at verse 3. 
Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Some translations substitute the word abundant life for the phrase eternal life. Because what we're talking here is not just life that goes on forever, but life that is all that we long for. Life that is rich and and, and fulfilling and exciting and satisfying. Life that is wonderfully intense, yet at the same time soothingly calm. Life that is beyond our greatest desires. What is this life? To know God the Father and to know Jesus the Son. To begin to understand them, to know them personally, what they feel, what they think, who they are. To begin to be swept away by their beauty. To begin to catch a glimpse of their profound goodness. To begin to explore their almost incomprehensible uh, wisdom and intelligence. To be trembling in the presence of their sheer power while at the same time experiencing the security of their infinite love. See, this is just a a hint, a suggestion of what the Father and Son have been experiencing through eternity past and taking delight in knowing each other and exploring each other and acknowledging and expressing that wonder and joy and delight in each other. And this is the delight that we are being invited into for eternity future. To know them. To be caught up in their glory. This is eternal life. Well, I want to take a little side trail now and to look at a couple of passages in which the Father expresses some of His delight in His Son. Now that we could go to any of the Messianic Psalms, which are just full of the Father's expression about the Son, or any of the Messianic prophecies, just all the way through Scriptures, we find these hints, these clues, these little pictures of God's love for His Son. But I want to look at three of them in the book of Matthew. Now the first one is in Matthew 3, at the baptism of Jesus. There, what's happening, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. That is the part of his life that the apostles knew enough about to tell us. This is before Jesus had done anything, quote, officially as, a, as reaching out and doing his, his public ministry. And he goes to John the Baptist. And John, begrudgingly at first, but eventually agrees to, baptizes Jesus. In verse 16 we see, as soon as Jesus was baptized... He went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This voice from heaven said, This is the Son that I love. I love him. And with him I am well pleased. Now that phrase, am well pleased... Uh, is a nice formal sounding phrase that doesn't mean much to us. But what the word means in, in plain English is this is my son. I like him. He brings me delight. The, the, the word literally means I am delighted with him. Just being around him brings me pleasure. Just looking at him excites me with happiness. This is my son. I like him. I really, really like him. 
And realize this is before Jesus had done anything in his earthly ministry. This is an expression of the relationship between the Father and Son. This is an expression of the intrinsic value of the Son. The Father is saying, here is someone of inestimable value. The second instance of God expressing this is in chapter 12. This is uh, actually a quote from Isaiah. Uh, But let me read it out of Matthew 12. This is the Father speaking. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he leads justice to victory, in his name the nations will put their hope. Again, the father starts by saying, here is the one I love. With him I am delighted. That's the exact same word for well, as well pleased in chapter 3. I am delighted with him. And then he goes on to tell us a little bit about what he likes about him. The Father likes the Son's gentle, compassionate spirit, attitude, character. See, the Son is not a person who is pushy or obnoxious. He doesn't impose himself on people. And he's very tender with those who are hurting. He mends the broken life carefully, gently. That's the kind of person he is. And the Father loves him for it. He likes that about the Son. That's good. It's right. Because it's also the way the Father is. That's the kind of person the Father is. You see, the Son is a perfect reflection of the character of all there is to know about the Father. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says it. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. The radiance of His glory. That means that everything that is glorious, everything that is wonderful, everything that is beautiful and good about the Father is true of the Son. Colossians 1.19 says, God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in him. Now this is a little hard to understand exactly what it means in real life. But what it says is clear. That the Father was delighted. That's the word it uses. The Father was delighted to put all of himself into the Son. In Colossians 2.9, a little later in the same book, puts it, In Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Again, this is mind-expanding stuff. This is stuff that's hard to really grasp. But again, what he is saying is that Jesus is fully God. And everything there is to know about God can be known in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect reflection of what the Father is like. That's why he can make the Father known to us. John 1.18, I think it's very interesting in this, in this regard. Listen carefully to what it says as I read it. John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, 
has made him known. The only way that we can know what the Father is like is because Jesus perfectly reflects his character. The way he acts, the things that he says, everything he does perfectly reflects the Father's character. So much so that the two are one. There is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when we look at Jesus, because he so perfectly represents the Father, we have seen the Father. Jesus said in John 14, 9, he said, If anyone has seen me, they have seen the Father. Ultimately, the only way we know what the Father is really like, what He really feels, what He really thinks, is by looking at the Son. This is their plan all along. And as we grow in love with the Son, we are really loving the Father because the two are identical. What we love about the Son is what is also true of the Father. This is how they have shared their glory. You see, from eternity past, they were exalting and delighting and recognizing and and affirming each other's value and beauty and goodness. And now, with the incarnation, they express that and enjoy that in a whole new way. This is what lies behind. This is the motive for the creation of the universe that we know. This is the motive in Jesus becoming a man. What the Father and Son were expressing through all eternity past now can be shared. This glory can be shared with their creatures, you and me. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. God made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. To give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Christ. Again, as we look intently into the face of Christ, we see the glory of God. We see what the Father is really like. And this is God's great pleasure to reveal Himself in the Son so that we can see Him and in that experience the delight of seeing something so beautiful, so valuable so significant and important that unless He strengthens us, unless He changes us, we can't bear it. Well, the third uh, instance in Matthew that I wanted to look at is in Matthew 17. This is what is often called the transfiguration. Because what happens is Jesus and James and John and Peter, they go up on this high mountain, and while they're up there, all by themselves, the four of them, Jesus' face starts shining. And it gets brighter and brighter. And and the disciples can't even look at Him. It's like the sun. And if they try to look at it, it's going to blind them. And Jesus' clothes begin to glow. And then the two most important men of all history show up to talk to Jesus. Moses and Elijah. And the disciples are impressed. This is, is... is a bigger deal than if George Washington and Abraham Lincoln showed up at your 4th of July party. These are the two most godly, the greatest men of all history. And the disciples are saying, these people think enough about Jesus to come back from the dead to talk to Him. 
What a glory. This is amazing. And so they scurry around. They want to build a little hut for them to stay in. And they're excited. We can learn all these things from these guys. This is great. Then what happens next eclipses that glory. Overshadows it so much that they forget about it. We're told that a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am delighted. Listen to him. Then the disciples, when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. These disciples were impressed out of their sandals that Elijah and Moses were there. But then comes the voice of one infinitely greater than they. The voice of God himself. El Shaddai, El Adonai, Yahweh. And their systems can't handle it. It overwhelms them. They go down to the ground immediately. They collapse. It is too much for them to deal with. Too much for them to process. You see, our systems, as we are now, we could not look full in the face of God. Moses asked to once. But God wouldn't allow it because it would have destroyed him. So God covered the cave that Moses was in. And Moses was able to look at, his, at the train of God, the, 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 the edge of his robe as he passed by. Because it would have destroyed him. We know our, our, our lips to be unclean. We know there's guilt. That we struggle to, to live up to the glory of God. We sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so, when we have opportunity to look full in His face, we shrink back, we hide, we run. We get religious so that we can veil our faces and look at the things about God and around God without ever looking directly at God. But someday, when we are transformed, when we are transfigured, we will look at the sun in the sky... And we won't have to turn away. We'll be able to see the full spectrum of light and the brilliant colors unlike anything you've ever imagined by looking straight at the sun. And we'll delight in the beauty of that. But that will be a dim, dim reflection of the beauty, of the glory of the Son of God. It's also worth noting in that passage where the disciples are on the ground, uh, in, in, in the two places where a little of Jesus' brilliance is exposed. Here and in Revelation 1, where Jesus' face shines like the sun and the disciples, they can't look. They fall to the ground. And in both cases, they're overwhelmed. In both cases, it's too much for them. They catch a glimpse of His glory, a glimpse of His purity and His brilliance, and they can't handle it. But in both cases, Jesus goes over, says He touches them, and He gently says, Hey, it's okay. It's me. It's Jesus. It's the one who loves you. You see, in Jesus we see the awesomely, the overwhelmingly terrifying combined with the soothingly gentle. Jesus is the awesome and terrifying creator of the universe. The righteous judge who instills fear, yet at the same time he is the one who loved us enough to give His life for us because we are important to Him. 
He values us. In Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, John, in the midst of his vision, is weeping desperately because there's no one who is worthy to open the scroll that has the answers to life and to the future. And one of the elders says, don't weep. Here comes the great victorious lion of Judah. And John looks up and what he sees is a little lamb. As if it had been slain, is the way he puts it. You see, the great and terrible Lion of Judah is also the gentlest of lambs. These are uh, just a few of the glimpses we get throughout Scripture of the, the feelings the Father has for the Son, of the glory that they have shared, glimpses of, of, of why they have delighted in looking at each other and expressing and exploring each other and understanding each other. This is what, for eternity past, has been their intense delight. And we can't imagine this. We can't imagine uh, infinite beauty or infinite pleasure. You know, our senses reach their limit just trying to explore the beauty and the creation around us. The, the beautiful intricacy of a microscopic animal or of, uh, the grandeur of, a, of an undersea valley. And our pleasures, our, our joys are fleeting. We experience them for a while and then we've got to rest. We don't have the strength to fully enjoy them. Or in enjoying them, they're used up and they're gone. They're, they're only temporary. Or our joys, our pleasures disappoint us. They're not what we had hoped they would be. So how can we imagine what it will be like to be exploring the, the eternal wellspring of all beauty? To be experiencing the, the never disappointing, the unending source of of all pleasure and joy. It's beyond our comprehension. We can only suggest at it. We can only hint at it. See, every joy that you have yet experienced is just the aroma of this meal that you will eat fully of and never feel stuffed. Every desire that you have been taken by is just the light spray from this ocean that you will be plunged into. To, to be drawn into, to be taken up in the glory, the love between the Father and the Son. To know both of them. This is eternal life. This is what we look forward to. Let's go back to finish up in John 17. I told you I wanted to hang out there. We already looked at the first several verses of uh, this prayer, saw that Jesus was uh, calling on the Father to glorify Him so that He could glorify the Father. That reciprocal glory that has been going on, that is their delight, is, is, is the joy of life for them. And He said that, that uh, everything He's done on this earth was intended to glorify the Father, and the Father glorified the Son on earth. Again, their desire was to give us a glimpse of their beauty, of their grandeur, of their goodness, of their wisdom, of their power, of their kindness. And in giving us that beauty, 
and giving us that, that glimpse to delight our hearts, to catch us up in awe and in wonder at something so precious, so valuable, so beautiful. And finally, we saw that for eternity past, that they have been delighting in one another. They have been exalted in just the, 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 the enjoyment of each other's presence. Well, now I want to look at the last couple of verses, verse 24 through 26. Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus tells the Father that that he really wants those that are his, you and me, to be with him so that we can see his glory, so that we can catch a glimpse of his beauty and his wisdom and his goodness and how much he loves us and, and what a the type of person that he really is, so that we can exalt in that and take delight in seeing him. And then he says, the reason the Father has glorified him, the reason the Father delights to make who he is known and to acknowledge his importance and his wonder and his beauty is that the Father loves him. You see, glory is the expression of love. Several weeks ago when I was teaching, I said that praise is the language of love. Young lovers praise each other as they enjoy and delight in each other. It just overflows into praise. Well, glory is an extension of that. It includes praise, but it also includes expressing the importance and the value of someone in everything you do, in everything you say, in your conduct, in your thinking, in your attitudes, in your whole being, in your whole character, signifying and recognizing that this person is of value. This person is of supreme importance. Just as praise is the outflowing of of the experience of value and of beauty, so glory is the fulfillment, it's the delight of our existence. It's what we were created for, was to behold glory, to reflect that glory, and to return that glory. But it also is part of our relationship with each other. To glorify and to be glorified. To know that we are important to someone, considered beautiful by them, valued by them. This is what lifts us up. And to glorify another, to express their importance to you, their great value to you, their beauty to you, is our fulfillment. To, love, to, to, to do this is to learn to love like God loves, to experience what He delights to experience. But how, if I am glorifying another human being, is this not idolatry? To acknowledge somebody else's beauty. Is not all glory due to God? Scripture is very clear. All glory is due His name. 
But I think we have to realize that what we are recognizing, what we are acknowledging in another person is the reflection of God's goodness, of His character. And in doing that with each other, we are being being given an avenue to come to understand more clearly His goodness. That this goodness I see in another person, this beauty I see in another person, this kindness I see in another person is a reflection of who He is. You see, Christ's life in you, His beauty living out through you, His character manifest in your life is your glory. Christ in you, your hope of glory. That's what Jesus prayed for at the end here, that He may be fully in us. Let me make one final point. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said that the world really doesn't understand. They, even the disciples don't really understand. They know that God sent Jesus, but they really don't know who God is. They don't really know what's important to Him. That's why Jesus will continue to make the Father known. But why? Why does Jesus continue to make the Father known? Listen to this. Jesus continues to make the Father known in order that the love you have for me might be in them. Hear that? The motive for making the Father known, the result of making the Father known, is that when we see the Father as He is, we will love Jesus like He does. The single most important thing to know about the Father is that He loves the Son with unbridled and unlimited passion. That his greatest eternal delight was and is and will be in the Son. And as we see the Father more and more clearly, we will become more and more like him. And we will begin to be flooded with a love for the Son. We will begin to be overwhelmed with that love. We will begin to see his beauty and his value And be in awe of that. And that will begin to fill us with a joy that is incomprehensible to the world. A joy that's above and in the midst of all the the, the circumstances and difficulties of our lives. A joy that is rooted in the very nature and character of God Himself. A joy that grows and grows as we with unveiled faces look fully into the face of our Lord and see His awesome beauty and His power and His goodness. We see the Lion and the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, it is so hard for us to comprehend just the delight that You have with Your Father the delight He has in You. Our experiences are so diminished because of our weakness, because of our sin, because of our dysfunction. Our experiences are so temporary. Or we get a taste of what it means to be affirmed and to affirm, and it feels good. But Lord, we want to be drawn in to Your infinite love, to experience the love that 
was behind the creation of this universe. The love that motivated you to come and to die for us. To be drawn into that. To be overwhelmed by it. To experience the eternal love that you have for your Son. Lord, I pray that we would catch glimpses of this. That we would begin to see you clearly. That we would boldly look into the face of your Son so that we might come to know you and that the love you have for him might be in us. Lord, uh, again, just continue to open our eyes to yourself. Show us yourself that we might be more like you. We pray this in your name. Amen.